because if you have the ownership, like just in this in this example of your data, if you have the ownership of your data and you can actually sell it and make money out of this, this can be money that you can use to to live your life. So you can base like a pay, you can have like a base salary, but it's not the government that is paying. It's just you making money out of your data. So nowadays there are many services that we use and you feel we feel they are free, but it's because we don't understand how we are paying those services, like Facebook or like Google, um, or even your bank account. Um, many, many times you don't pay your bank to open a bank account. So there are many services that we use and we feel that they are free and we like that they are free, but it's because we don't understand what we are paying. Hello and welcome to the Stylus Free Podcast. We are back on Roosevelt Island at Cornell Tech and today I am talking with Vicente Rotman. He is a blockchain engineer at Consensus and finishing up his degree in health tech at Cornell Tech. So thanks for coming on today, Vicente. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So what is a blockchain engineer? What type of things do you work on? Oh, it's an interesting question. Well, um, I am working on a specific project inside Consensus called Linea, which is a data protocol. So it's like very technical. Yeah, we build like smart contracts and then services to interact with the smart contracts. So, well, we build a lot of tools for developers and also like front end and stuff in which users can actually interact with blockchain applications. Awesome. So you're more right now making tools for other blockchain developers to work with blockchain? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the project I am working on. Awesome. Are there any other projects you're working on that you're actually the blockchain developer, like creating a blockchain or like working with blockchains in a different way besides just the dev tools? Uh, well, in consensus, most of the projects use the Ethereum blockchain. So we don't actually build new blockchains, but we build tools and uh, blockchain applications in the Ethereum network. So what has drawn you to blockchain because I've been around you for the past two years around and I know it's like very dedicated to blockchain and you love it like what brings you to it yeah um, well I started I think the, the same as most of the people with like trading cryptocurrencies I don't know buying bitcoin ethereum and all of those cryptocurrencies and then trading uh, well I started actually building like an arbitrage algorithm, I realized that there were different prices in different exchange markets. So in some exchange market, you can buy um, some cryptocurrency cheaper and then sell it in another one for more price. So that was happening a lot. It's happening less now. Uh, so I started like that, building an algorithm to actually trade and earn money. So it works for, I don't know, a couple of weeks. <laughs> <laughs> then I started having more troubles. Then, well, in the beginning, it was all about cryptocurrencies. And then here in Kernel Tech, I took the blockchain class with Ari Jules, and I started realizing that actually there's a lot more in blockchain than cryptocurrencies, and the technology have like a huge potential in, in many, many industries. So I get very excited about uh, the technology itself. So then I start studying more and then I start working at Consensus and now I'm like fully focused on building this decentralized world. That's awesome. So when you say there's a lot more potential besides just cryptocurrencies, what are some of the potential use cases of blockchain that really excite you? 
Well, I think that it's a technology that is just starting. It's everything we can say that everything is still in diapers. So there, are, it is difficult to imagine like techno what's gonna happen when this actually like gets integrated everywhere. But like short term applications that you can see, you can imagine blockchain as a a trusted third party. So it's like you can run a program and decide on a set of rules and then nobody can actually change the rules unless that's a rule so basically um, uh, well many people think that it's this idea that you cannot change anything after you you deploy but it's not like that because you can actually set one rule that it's that some organization or some people under some circumstances they can actually change the rules so applications that I can imagine in short term can be, for example, like an insurance company. So that's all about trust. How an insurance company works is mostly this idea of pooling risk. So if you're scared that your house can get burned and then you will need to pay a lot of money, and I am scared of the same, what we can do is decide, okay, if my house get burned or yours, then we both are going to pay. Mm -hmm. So then in the case of the event, you will pay less money, but it's more risky. That's basically an insurance. You pay all the time, so you're paying a lot more. Mm -hmm. But in the case of the event, you have to pay way less. So you, we could actually build a blockchain application uh, in which we define a set of rules. So under which circumstances the insurance is going to pay and like what happens if you stop paying your monthly fee. So then you can have this set of rules that actually, well, that's what, what is called a smart contract that can actually handle the money. And in the case of an event, it will pay the, the people that, that the house were, was burning in keeping with this example. So it's this trusted third party that will always follow the rules that we decided previously. Yeah, that's a great example. Are there any people or companies working on an insurance-based blockchain smart contract? Uh, I don't know. I'm not. I'm not familiar with that. I think it's a. It's a very good example to explain like what is the potential. But an insurance company is way more actually than just handling this money and pay the people. So it's not something that is that easy to. Right, to, and to I would imagine does all of it have to be in cryptocurrency when you're using the smart contract to guarantee that's what's being transacted? Like if you get paid back, you have to be paid back for your whole house in cryptocurrency? Yeah, I see that actually that's something that it will take time in order to blockchain to become something like real. It's very important, the adoption of the cryptocurrency. So, yeah. Right. And so what are your thoughts on that there's so many different cryptocurrencies as well? Like, what you think there's going to be a few that make it out or there's just going to be an exchange of all the different cryptocurrencies in the exchange markets or... How will that play out when you're making these smart contracts that rely heavily on like a certain type of cryptocurrency? Yeah, I think, well, of course, ideally, we would like to have only one cryptocurrency, but that's not how the world works. <laughs> so I think probably there will be a lot of cryptocurrencies, maybe different cryptocurrencies in actually different industries uh, with different uses, like use cases. But yeah, I think, I think it's very likely that, that there are a lot of them in the future. Actually, most of the project in consensus, we are not actually building cryptocurrencies or, or working with cryptocurrencies. We just assume that one of them is going to work. Uh, for now, we're using Ethereum because 
uh, technology wise is it's it's very good and uh, it's also the one that have the the biggest community of developers building on top of this so in terms of technology the one that i most believe that it, it can actually uh, work globally and scale is ethereum mostly because of the amount of people and engineers that are working on that definitely definitely yeah i've definitely heard that from many people that ethereum is, is super developer friendly and kind of made for developers that they can create these smart contracts create their own tokens if i'm not mistaken as well uh, and really create different communities and and platforms to use these cryptocurrencies so what else interests you within cryptocurrencies or blockchains? Like, where do you see the future going in it? Yeah, it's very interesting to think about the future, the decentralized future with blockchain. Uh, there are many different potential scenarios. One that I, well, like very, things that I think it will happen and they're very interesting is, for example, this concept of DAO, which is a decentralized autonomous organization. So that's something that, that many projects are building. And it's this idea of having an organization that can iterate through itself. So basically, I don't know, you can have like a, a list of people that can actually decide to change some rules, but actually the same community can vote in order to add or remove people from the list. So those lists are usually called TCR, like a token curated registry. So you could have this list as like a board or an organization that can take some decision, maybe not everything, but only some decision. So then the same community can maintain this board of people, for example, that can actually iterate through the organization itself. That's interesting. I've seen DAOs mentioned, but I never really knew what they were. That's very interesting concept. I can see it being played in, like you're saying, an organization, like a company, but also politics. Right, like voting and you have representatives that would be the board in this case and the people vote on who the representatives are and you could, if you don't like someone, you could vote them out. And so it's really interesting. Are there any organizations currently using like a DAO structure that are working out well that you know of? Uh, yeah, there are actually many frameworks in order to build it DAOs. For example, well, there is one that is growing a lot. It's called Aragon and it's a framework in order to build DAOs. So basically you can use this in order to build your DAO with like any purpose. There is also a very interesting project inside Consensus called Governex. So as the name it sounds, what they are trying to do or the final goal is to at some point build some kind of like government structure that can actually like, uh, I don't know, set rules and like make them executed and define people that can actually change the rules, you know, and all of this decentralized organization. Well, I would like to talk a little bit more about the project I am working on. I think it's, it's very interesting and I have a, a, an idea on how I can see this potentially changing, changing the world. Uh, so the project I am working on is a, the data protocol. So currently many digital services store data on your name. But what happened now is that they store them in, the, in their central servers and they basically own and manage your data. Right. And you're saying non-blockchain corporations and organizations. That yeah, 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 I mean any central service, any, right. any uh, digital service that you use now. Like, I don't know, you use Facebook or you use Google or you use your, your Fitbit or whatever, right. they generate data. Right. And all of this data 
it's like your data, but basically they store it and they manage it. So with Linea, with this data protocol, the idea is that any, any, any app could use the protocol in order to store and manage the data. And what would happen is that the data will be stored in IPFS, which is this distributed storage network. So basically your data will be stored in different computers around mm -hmm. the network, and it will be encrypted by a key that only the end user have. So this will, this will mean that the user will need to be more responsible because they will need to manage uh, basically their keys, but then they, they can decide to give access to which part of their data to whom. So for example, uh, imagine you use a social, a social network. Mm -hmm. So then all the data will be stored and encrypted with the end user key. And then the user decide to share the data with the social media. So then whenever, whenever the user wants, he or she can decide to stop sharing the data with the social media. And then they won't, they won't have access to that data anymore. And they can limit what pieces of the data? It's not yeah. like an all or nothing. Space, yeah, it's right? not all or nothing. <laughs> so th that's the protocol we're building. Uh, it's open source and it's completely free. So the thing is, I don't know, in this same example of the social media, you could actually, like the social media, instead of being like a big data holder, it could be basically a service that you decide to hire. So you share the data with them. But if a new social media come that have like a better service or for any reason, better features, whatever, for any reason you want to move, you could decide to like stop sharing with the old social media, start sharing with the new social media, and you don't even need to move physically where your data is stored. They will immediately have access to all of your social media data, like all of your friends, all of your data, all of your posts. Uh, so then basically all of these digital services, they actually become services. And the one that owns the data is the end user. That's very interesting. Yeah, it's thinking how social media platforms and web development work right now. You're saying that you own the database side of things. It's not being stored on someone else's server somewhere. Or at least it is in a decentralized fashion, but a company doesn't own your data. And they have to actually convince you to allow them to use your data so you can kind of get the front end and maybe back end services from them to visualize your data or to like run run computations on it or probably more interesting stuff socially than that. But yeah, that's really amazing that you're kind of creating the data structure around how to house either personal data or pretty much any type of data, I'd imagine. And then it can be kind of accessed by anyone that you allow to, which gives you a lot more ownership, number one, on your data and also the ability to maybe even make money on it or because if right now Facebook owns all your data, they sell it to advertisers and you just get ads. You get free service from Facebook, but you're just getting ads. You could do some sort of partnership with a Facebook like organization where, Hey, if I give you my data. You can maybe run ads to me, but I get a piece of the ads back. And like you're, it's more of a partnership as opposed to like they have all the, all the data and all the information that's valuable. Yeah. That's, that's right. You could potentially sell your data and make money out of this. And this is a concept that I really like that I think it could potentially happen with blockchain is this idea that has been going around global basic salary. So basically we are automating everything. Like, I don't know, you can see now this supermarket that Amazon built in Seattle 
which only with computer visions and cameras, you check everything that the users take, the, the user, the customers. So nobody works in that supermarket. It's still an experiment, but that's going to happen. Like we're going to like so many, so many jobs uh, are going to disappear because machines like these cameras in this supermarket can do better and cheaper. Well, some of the Nordic countries are trying to actually build this global uh, base salary in which governments pay to the citizens if they are unemployed. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think with blockchain, we could actually build something like that, but not from the, from the government itself. Because if you have the ownership, like just in this, in this example of your data, if you have the ownership of your data and you can actually sell it and make money out of this, this can be money that you can use to to live your life. So you can base like a ba- you can have like a base salary, but it's not the government that is paying you. It's just you making money out of your data. So nowadays there are many services that we use, and you feel we feel they are free, but it's because we don't understand how how we are paying those services, like Facebook or like Google, um, or even your bank account. Many, many times you don't pay your bank to open a bank account. So there are many services that we use and we feel that they are free and we like that they are free, but it's because we don't understand what we are paying. If we could, I don't know, for example, in this, in this idea of the data, if we could manage our data and sell it, so it means that we will need to be more responsible on like the keys. If you lose your keys, then nobody can help you. So you have to be more responsible. But yeah, have, have more power means have more responsibility. Yeah, it's really interesting. I'm just brainstorming off of this. Instead of just like selling your data one time, you could have like a subscription service where like, hey, if you want my updated data every month, you pay me $10 a month, $100 a month, whatever, like however the value systems work out. So you have a constant stream of income just for being active, (laughs) just for like searching stuff. And then they can sell you ads or they can use that data for like large aggregated data sets for research or something like that. Yeah, so really... A lot of different possibilities when you actually own your data and have full control over who can access it. And it's interesting also what you said with blockchains, the security risks of if you if someone steals your private key, like how do you recoup your data, right? So there is some stuff I think with blockchains that kind of need to be figured out, or how how are you responsible like for that sort of data? Maybe it's just education or something to let make sure people understand but yeah i think there's some interesting edge cases with blockchain to to figure out in that case yeah key, key management is a, a huge a concept and idea in the industry like all the people are trying to figure out what's the best way to manage your keys because in this decentralized world you have to manage your keys otherwise the like if someone can make your like recover your key in case you lose it that means that that someone can do it whenever they want so basically you lose all the decentralization if you have some some way to recover your key yeah it's like identity theft of your crypto assets digital assets yeah i'm trying to think maybe you could do fingerprints like but there's nothing that's guaranteed to be forever like what if you someone burns your thumbs or something or dental records, like what could be a truly identical, like your DNA, maybe? A truly, but someone could take your DNA. Like how do you make this very, sec- from a security standpoint, something about you that will never change that people, other people can't get easily? Yeah, that's a huge problem, but biometrics in general 
are known as being like not good authentication mm-hmm. systems because they're, they're all very easy to fake. Like your fingerprint, if, if that's the way to recover your key, then I don't know, you're in a bar using a glass, someone take the glass and can actually steal your fingerprint and then steal your <laughs> private key. Exactly. And with your DNA, you can get it from a, from a hair. So basically any kind of um, biometric, someone could potentially steal it from you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so like how do you make a perfectly secure private key that can't be stolen, that you can't forget? And very interesting. I wonder what people are going to come up with the different techniques in the future. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting problem. I mean, it's a huge problem in the industry. Talking about automation taking over jobs, and you have this whole new concept of personalized data that people can buy and sell, it's a whole new market as well. Right, so your data, other people's data, is a commodity that can be moved. So you could have traders of data, people whose whole jobs are selling and buying data and making the most uh, usefulness and value out of that data. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think data marketplace, um, buying and selling data, like exchange markets for data, I think that's, that's going to be a thing. Um, yeah, it happened... I don't know, there, there are many data that is generated nowadays that is very valuable and we're not actually using it. For example, I don't know, all of your, like your Fitbit or if you use 23andMe, all of that genetic data, uh, there are many data that uh, researchers would, would love to have and, and they could actually make like enormous progress using that data. Uh, but it's very difficult for them to have it because... I don't know, if, if a company like 23andMe would decide to actually sell the user's uh, genetics data, it would look terrible. Like, nobody would use 23andMe anymore. Uh, so they have all of this valuable data that maybe many researchers would pay, like, and universities or, or even, like, pharmaceuticals or any company that is building technology would, would love and would pay a lot of money to have that data. But they cannot pay 23andMe because it, it would look terrible. But what if the user owns their genetic data? That it was generated using 23andMe, but then the user owns it. So it's okay if the user can sell it. And then the user will earn money. Uh, and the company or university or researchers that are um, need this data and are building something cool, they could actually pay for that. Yeah, that's awesome. So you hire 23andMe, you pay the money to give you the data, you store it in an IPFS throughout decentralized computers and networks, and now you have the decision to give that or sell that to other people as well. So now this service of 23andMe isn't just giving you information, but it's giving you more value that's personalized to you that you have the decision of how to manage it. Yeah, but in, instead of like nobody's actually hiring 23andMe, it- like 23andMe have to decide to use Linea or I don't know, any decentralized mm-hmm, right. protocol to actually store the data in the user's name. Yeah. I'm also thinking of a Kickstarter equivalent of data. So say you're saying people value this research data that they could use like 23andMe genetic data. There could be an opportunity for someone to say, hey, I want to build something, but I need all this data. If you give it to me for free now and eventually if it becomes a product you can be a, a shareholder in this product because you provided data. So you can passively contribute to, to different research or different products and add value with no risk really of, of losing money, but a potential upside of, hey, if this helps 
make medicine, this help us do something that you could actually become a shareholder and profit based off your data. Yeah, yeah, no, the data, all of the data potential with, with blockchain is it's very, very interesting. All of this idea of, I feel that blockchain is a lot like a, like a social revolution through technology uh, in which the idea is actually empowering the people. But that means that they will need to have more responsibility over mm -hmm. their, their stuff. Yeah, are there any companies right now or people using your data protocol? Is it in is it in production at the moment or is it still being worked on right now? No, we're still it's in beta version. Uh, so you could actually start using it. It's it's already in beta and you could use it, but no, it's not it's not in production yet. We're okay. still building it, and we're also assuming that. Uh, well, there is this huge problem of uh, storage. We're using IPFS, but IPFS is a distributed storage network in which anyone can actually, if you have your computer with storage, you can put your computer in the network and then the network will store stuff in your storage. So that's, that's the idea of IPFS and it's completely distributed. But the problem is that it does not have any incentive for the storage owner to actually put the storage in the service of the network. So there are many projects trying to solve this problem. Uh, and we are kind of assuming that someone will, will figure it out. There is like, I don't know if you heard about Filecoin, which it, it was a huge ICO. I've heard of it. I don't know the details of it though. Yeah, they raised like more than 200 millions, I think, like a lot of money wow. with their ICO. And their idea is to build uh, on top of IPFS, a project that can actually incentivize you to put your storage on the network. So the thing is, you will get paid to put your storage in the service of the network. Uh, and there are many projects trying to figure out this problem. They actually haven't released, they still don't have uh, like a working version. Uh, but yeah, many people are trying to solve this, this problem. Yeah, that makes sense. Because if you have your computer that... I'm running out of storage space on my MacBook right now. Yeah, how do you justify giving up your storage space and having, because if it's on there, then people also need to access it. So you're sending information back and forth to people, which costs energy and money. So how do you justify storing someone else's data on your computer? Maybe you get incentives by you, you can store your data on someone else's computer with stuff like that that you know is decentralized and secure and you might have more access to it. Now, I'm curious uh, how as this goes on for decentralized storage, how much of it will kind of coalesce back to some sort of centralization where there's like a small data center that stores a bunch of information that's just a thousand of them instead of a hundred or something or it's still because there's also the reliability aspect right that if you're if I'm storing stuff just on my laptop or my phone for someone else that if I turn that off then they might not have access to it. Maybe it's replicated in a few different places, so there's some fault tolerance there. But if it's just stored on anyone's old computer, that, that computer dies or something else, I think like Amazon Web Servers, or a bunch of servers that's centralized, it's a, like within their own structure, it's a bunch of different computers, right? But central to one organization. But you know that those computers are staying on unless they just have a power outage or something crazy so they're kind of optimized to store files to like always be an access over the internet for information 
So I'm very curious on how the future of files, decentralized file storage will look when there's a reliability factor with storing stuff on my own computer versus a whole like, cluster of computers. Yeah, I think about that, that one huge company will store almost everything. I think that doesn't really matter if the data is encrypted with a key that only the end user have. Uh, about the reliability and the possibility that someone will like turn on their computer or just like, I don't know, to turn off their computer or just delete the data or whatever. That's the huge problem that companies like Filecoin are trying to solve. So they're, they're talking about this idea of proof of storage, um, which the concept is the following. Uh, I will store the data not in one node, but let's say in five nodes. And then, um, I don't know, every X amount of time, I will challenge all the nodes to prove that they actually have the data stored. So that's the idea of proof of storage. But how can they prove that they actually store the whole data and not only like a parts of the data? So that's the challenge on how to challenge the computer in a way that it's very difficult for them to prove that they have the file if they don't have the whole file. So interesting. Uh, yeah, I'm yeah. thinking if there's some way to kind yeah, of hash yeah. the contents. You also you like you need the key as well, right? It doesn't matter because you can prove that you what you have is encrypted. So you have to prove that that encrypted file is there. It, it does, you don't really need to but decrypt. What if you just save the encryption though? Yeah, you only save the encryption, yeah. right? Okay, because it sends it back and you decrypt it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Locally. That's why they, that they use sense. But the, the issue is that the protocol has to have, have it should be able to challenge each node in a way that the node cannot trick and the protocol is not storing the files because otherwise it doesn't make sense so the yeah. protocol has to should be able to challenge a computer a node about a specific uh, record and prove that they actually didn't uh, change it without actually storing the record Right. Say you have those five nodes that are all supposed to be storing the same file. Three of them change it in a way that is different, but in the same way. Like if you were just gonna base off like a consensus of all these nodes, what the right file is, then it'd be wrong. Kind of like a fifty-one percent rule with blockchains. Anyways, that like if well, I would guess take a step back. One way to see if the node has the correct file is to say, all right, here's five nodes. Four of them have the exact same file, and one is different. So those four nodes must be the correct file. But there's these edge cases where if more files, more nodes have the wrong file than the right one, then that would be assumed the right file. So yeah, there's no like guaranteed way without having a central repository of all the files that you know are correct that you can compare against to actually have that proof of storage that I can come up with off the top of my head. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, but uh, the, the idea is mostly to keep checking if one computer have changed it or delete or anything. And if they cannot prove that they have the actual record, you basically remove that record from that node and you store it in another one. So then you keep challenging these five nodes. If one fail, you store it in another one uh, in a way that you, can, you always have enough uh, duplication that you would always have... Uh, the, the correct file. Right, reliability if one node goes down that 
that yeah. it still exists somewhere yeah. else. But uh, actually, nobody have uh, solved that problem completely yet. <laughs> so a lot of people working on that, and I hope someone someone will figure out that soon. Definitely. Yeah, no no file storage system is 100%, right? There's always something that can go wrong. It's yeah. just how fault tolerant can you be against it, right? Yeah, but in the in the storage mechanisms that we use now on the cloud, uh, like Amazon Web Service, we totally trust them. Like Pretty good, yeah. yeah. <laughs> they're, they're never, they're never going to lose your file, right? right? They have like pretty secure protocols on how to replicate the information in a way that But they're in control of all the nodes, so they don't they trust its own network to be correct because there's no internal reason that they would change a node. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Any other crypto topics you'd like to discuss? Uh, Yeah, sure. There there are many topics. (laughs) Uh, Well, something that uh, that I was uh, talking the like a couple of weeks ago with a friend is that um, in idea in order to have like a, a currency that actually can be can be used uh, it's very important to be able to give to owe money to have a debt and to give credit so that's something that uh, it, it has to be developed in in, in blockchain in, in cryptocurrencies in general that that's very important I was thinking about this idea of actually having your assets, the ownership of your assets in the blockchain. So that could mean that you you could potentially put your assets as a warranty for like a loan. So uh, I actually was thinking about this. Well, a lot of companies are working on on putting the certificate of ownership of your real estate or of your land in the blockchain. And <laughs> if we think that in the future, most of our assets and devices will be IoT devices, so then we could actually ask the devices to check in the blockchain if you are the owner of the asset in order to use it. So you could do something, for example, with cars. Uh, well, now in the in the U.S., most of the cars work with uh, leasing. So mm-hmm. basically, instead of you go and buy a new car, uh, what you do is you lease it. And then you pay monthly. And I don't know, if you don't pay or whatever, the leasing company could potentially actually take your car. So if you could put a certificate of ownership of the car in the blockchain. So that means if I own that, that means that I own the car. Uh, you could actually put an IoT device in the lock of the car. So then, I don't know, every two weeks or every X amount of time, the car will challenge you to prove that you are actually the owner. So you have to prove to your car that you own the certificate of ownership of this car to use it. And that will allow, well, first the leasing company to actually just take the certificate if you don't pay. You can put all of that in a smart contract. But under, under certain circumstances, the leasing company will take the, the certificate. So then they can just go and prove to the car that they own it and take it. So this idea of having your assets in the blockchain can end up in basically putting your assets as a warranty of a loan, or you can even gamble with your assets. So you could actually put your car in a smart contract and decide that, 
I don't know, you play a lottery or whatever, and if you lose, you will lose the certificate of ownership of your car, which means that someone will, will be able to come and take it. So this idea of putting your assets, the ownership of your assets, of your house, of your land, of your car, in the blockchain, it means that you can actually sign contracts and put your assets as a warranty, maybe in a loan or do whatever you want, like digitally in the blockchain with your assets. Yeah. Yeah, that's a lot of information. Going back to the car at the beginning, kind of funny to think of the concept that your physical car key is actually a, a encrypted key, <laughs> like your personal encryption key that it connects to the internet when you unlock your car. It's like that physical thing holds that information with maybe some smart contracts um, availability for the insurance company or the, the, the loaner to like change the key if necessary or if you don't make a payment sort of thing that they can change the key on you and then you literally can't get in your car because you don't have the key to the car both on the blockchain and in real life does that make sense yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Well, maybe maybe it was too fast okay yeah but just it, saying no no i mean i mean all my explanation this idea of putting uh, the assets in the chain yeah oh no no yeah that, that made sense like, oh, okay. yeah no that, that was all really good uh, i'm just the first time I've heard stuff like that, so just digesting it and thinking of, there's a lot of cool things to, to pick off of it. One of them, yeah, being like a physical key is actually a digital key for for your car, yeah, yeah, yeah. for your house, right? You're talking about home leases as well. Yeah, that you could, and I think yeah, I heard you mention before that you could just say, hey, if this person hasn't paid due to the smart contract, they, the car won't turn on, <laughs> right? And then you know the location of the car, the company has the authority, kind of like the DOA, DAOs we were talking about, like, like the leasing company kind of could be the board where if people don't pay that they can come like reappropriate the cars and stuff like that. So it's interesting to see kind of all these things work together, like the DAOs we were talking about, plus like this new idea of credit. And yeah, something when you initially said that, I was thinking of a cryptocurrency credit card <laughs> that you could have to build up credit on your account so you could purchasing with cryptocurrency is that there could be someone basically lending you cryptocurrency it could even be like a decentralized sort of bank where people could lend cryptocurrency and if you pay them back it builds up your credit and if you don't pay them back you have some sort of assets like digital assets even or deeds that are stored digitally saved on there that that person can instantly claim through the smart contract that that's theirs now so it's like an interesting thing to take banking a very centralized like many different levels sort of concept and apply it to this cryptocurrency and being able to like anyone could be a banker anyone could have the option to loan stuff and build their own new sort of credit yeah yeah yeah, yeah. that's you got it that, that's that that's what I, I was trying to say when this idea of putting your assets i think we're trying to build like in general the blockchain community uh, we're trying to build a lot of tools in order to to be able to Inter, like to make these smart contracts be able to interact with the real world because basically a smart contract is a set of rules that it, get, it gets executed and nobody can change them or only if they can if they are allowed to in the rules so basically nobody can skip the rules so all of those rules will become more powerful if the blockchain is more connected to the real world and a, a huge problem another huge problem that is happening now is 
uh, how to put in real information for, for information from the real world in the blockchain in a trusted way. So imagine a very simple application in which you are uh, betting on sport games. So, okay, the contract can handle the bets, handle the money, pay the winners, everything. But how the contract will verify that the actual uh, results of the game was the, the, the real result. Uh, and that's a huge problem because if there is a, 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 a human, a person, a physical person that have to put and insert the results, then that person can actually fake the results. Uh, so this is a, a huge problem on how the smart contract can verify that that was actually the real result of the game. Yeah, because right now it's centralized that people, yeah, they take bets and they pay out the money, but say you have a situation and this is all digital, right, going on that you have five people who are in charge of submitting the results and agreeing on it or getting some sort of consensus that this is what happened, but they are in collusion with each other that oh, we'll, we'll just make, well, like this, we, we made bets like this and no matter what, we're going to input some other information that like, gets us all the money somehow, like that we win all the bets because of how we inserted it. So how do you get it so you can verify with each other that it's the actual correct bet? So yeah, so yeah, that's a, a huge problem. So we're, I think in general, the, the technology is going to that place in which uh, it can interact with the real world in a more trusted way because in the smart contract, everything is trusted, but when it has to, everything is trustless. But when you need to interact with the real world, there can be someone that can attack the system. Uh, and in, in this idea of putting information from the real world, actually Ari Jules, which is mm. this uh, professor of blockchain here in, in Cornell Tech, he's, he's working on, on that problem. Tom Cryer, mm. that's the project that Ari Jules is working on. So the idea of the project is how to put information from the real world in the blockchain. Uh, and what they're doing is basically they are building, well, a tone crier is a device that uses Intel SGX, which is this, Intel SGX is a processor from Intel that they sell it as a black box that you can actually run code and handle keys in a way that not even the operating system can access. Well, a lot of people don't believe like how good is that? And actually there was an attack. Oh, really? Uh, like a month ago, I think. But the idea is that you have a device that gets the information from like many different sources. So then you put, I don't know, many of those devices that get uh, the result from many different sources. And then all of those devices do consensus between them in order to put that information in the blockchain. So you will need to uh, take control over 50% of the devices or 50% of the sources. Yeah, so you need a very coordinated attack to, like maybe you could hack into one at the exact right time, but hacking into many 50 to 100 different sensors basically that are running these smart contracts um, to change the results would be much more difficult. Yeah, and as we have a more secure hardware devices, then this will become more difficult to, to hack. But yeah, that's the idea. It's the idea of putting, in a trusted way, put information from the real world in the blockchain. Yeah, something else I'm curious about is, as time goes on, 
things that were basically security and hacking are always like getting better and yeah. like they catch up with each other. And so how do you make it so that you have a hardware that's not hackable today that six months from now someone can't get in there and then mess with the results instantly, right? Like as they figure out how this is built, so how do you constantly update the firmware or the software of that hardware that you're using to make sure that it stays not hackable even if it is today as time goes on? Yeah, that's always, that's always the problem <laughs> yeah. with the cryptography and security in, in general, that has been, since always, that has been the problem. The hackers are always trying to catch, and then the, I don't know, security, software, hardware, they're trying to build, like, more, better tools. That's, right. That's always the problem. Can you talk more about what happened with Ethereum, why there's Ethereum Classic and regular Ethereum? Yeah, that's a very interesting story. Uh, and actually, we were talking before about the DAOs, these decentralized autonomous organizations. So this division between Ethereum Classic and Ethereum started with the very first DAO. Um, so there was this project in which it was a decentralized autonomous organization to invest money on projects. So basically, all the people, anyone that can put can put money on this DAO, and then there is like a board that can actually decide where to invest. So the thing is, this board can only decide where to invest, but they cannot steal the money because they, those are some rules that not even them can change. Uh, so when you invest, you know that your risk is only putting on the board, but because you invest, you can actually decide and like contribute to add or like remove people from the board or add people. Well, this was all this project about like investing in a DAO. Um, one hacker discovered a bug in the code and uh, this guy was able to stole uh, like a lot of money. I think it was like $80 million oh, or wow. something like that, like a lot of money from the DAO. And then basically the Ethereum Foundation uh, which is this this uh, organization that in uh, work a lot on research on how to make Ethereum scalable, but they, they don't really have any power over over the network. They are only this voice that people trust, and they're making research on how to make the technology better. So they propose to all of the miners to do something that is called a hard fork, and go back, like roll back the, the, net, the blockchain until the block, like right before the DAO and fix the problem and start mining from, from there. So what happened was that many miners accept this and they actually roll back the blockchain and they started mining from before the DAO, they fixed the problem. And in that universe, the attacker didn't get the money. But many other miners, they said that they don't agree with this idea of hard forking because these kind of bugs is something that it can happen and it will happen again. And that doesn't mean that they will they should actually hard fork every time that there is an attack. We should actually learn and try to avoid this in the future. So then the miners that uh, decided to hard fork and in which the attacker didn't get the money, they are the Ethereum nowadays. And the miners that decided to, to keep going, in which actually the attacker got the money, it's what is called Ethereum Classic. Yeah, so very curious about how a hard fork works 
in relation to the value of the cryptocurrency. So you're saying this person stole a lot of money, $80 million or so, and that was enough of a consequence to decide to fork Ethereum into a totally different kind of blockchain where you take right before the guy stole all this money and keep going as if it never happened, basically, kind of resetting it. But what I'm wondering is, now we have two blockchains, essentially. One of this world where this guy stole all this money, and one of this world where he didn't, right? But let's say before he stole this money, Ethereum was worth $5. Now that you've forked into two different places, it's not like you can double, like you have Ethereum Classic that's worth $5, and Ethereum is worth $5, now you have $10. So how does that work in a situation with the actual value of the cryptocurrency? Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a very good question. And actually, we have seen hard forks in Bitcoin, like, I think around four times. Like Litecoin, Bitcoin Cash, Bitcoin Gold, I guess. Like, there, there have been many times. But basically, the price of the cryptocurrencies is completely free market. What people are willing to pay. Um, like, what people are, 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 like, it's basically all the exchange markets work 24-7 and people are free to put any offer or bid that they want. So they can put any price and if someone is willing to sell for that price, the transaction will happen. So it totally depends on the market. On after that, how people value Ethereum Classic and how people value Ethereum and what they're willing to pay. But the hard forks that we have seen in Bitcoin, most of the time, one of them keep the exact same price or maybe even like increase a little bit <laughs> and the other one like goes down a little bit but yeah most of the time you you have more money after that i'm not really sure why but yeah it seems some like some sort of cryptocurrency inflation somehow when that happens or maybe it just it draws media attention so people start buying to make bets that's really interesting that it would increase you would think that it would kind of like split among the two forks right like the original and like the hard fork version of itself that if you have a market, you have a bunch of assets, like it's worth this amount of money and if you fork into say like there's two versions that happen that it would pretty much be that same market cap being split into two different directions. So it's interesting how I guess kind of like the dollar, kind of like fiat currency where there's no nothing tied to the cryptocurrencies. So like how the value of it works is yeah, just market like what people are willing to pay for it and that you can actually increase the value in total of Ethereum Classic and Ethereum doing that. So I'm assuming the people who are on Ethereum Classic, even if they wanted to just start keep going with the hard fork Ethereum, that they still own the Ethereum Classic coins, right? Because it's not like they would just disappear after that. So now they just maybe doubled or at least like increased the value with the hard fork, which is like very interesting. And like how cryptocurrency works with inflation, just like very interesting to me. No, basically after you after that fork happened, all of the people that had money in Ethereum, they have the exact same money in Ethereum and in Ethereum Classic. Yeah. Because all the past was exactly the same. But if you see the prices now, the price of Ethereum now is like around two hundred dollars, and Ethereum Classic is is like around fourteen. So it's a huge difference. Right. So now that guy instead of having eighty million dollars has like eight. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know what was the price when the DAO happened. Right, right. But probably it was less than that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's funny. And you said Litecoin was a fork off of Bitcoin? Yeah. I didn't realize that. Oh, yeah. Litecoin. Yeah, the, the whole change that they did is they, they make a hard fork in order to change the hash function. Oh. 
Yeah, to make it kind of faster. Got it. So it wasn't. So there's also forks. Not that if something goes wrong, but they see a big improvement in the the ability to to run the cryptocurrency, to run the blockchain. Yeah, that was my understanding of Litecoin. Is like it's less cost intensive to actually like mine or something. Mm-hmm. Or what, what's the advantage of Litecoin? No, actually, you you don't really want to decrease the cost of mining because uh, the whole idea is the the proof of work. So you have to prove that you actually make the work. And you know, maybe the maybe the maybe making hash functions faster. It's it makes yeah. It should make actually mining cheaper because you should be able to get to the to the puzzle faster. Yeah, I don't know. I'm not really sure what's the actual improvement that. Okay. That like indeed, but yeah. For example, in about the the time of hashing and adding the new block, in in Bitcoin, it takes like around ten minutes to find the puzzle and be able to mine the next block, and in Ethereum it's like around two to five minutes, or maybe less, like between one or two three minutes. It's like way faster, and actually, what what that means is that all of these like natural forks happen a lot more on Ethereum. Uh, what is a natural fork is, for example, when two miners mine the next block in like similar times, and then basically there are people mining on two different blocks. But in the end, all of that that always merge because what happens is that all the miners always get the longest chain that they can see. Mm-hmm. So at like in the next block. Some some chain will be longer, and then people will adopt that. Yeah. So with that natural fork, you're saying people mine off of the same blocks. Now there's a two different blocks added to this, and fork naturally, and then it keeps going, but one kind of takes over the other one, and people start ignoring the other fork. Yeah, that's what happened. In Bitcoin, it's very rare. In Ethereum, it happens all the time because it's a lot faster yeah. to mine the next block. It's easier. Interesting. Is there any lost value or anything off of the, the fork that didn't go anywhere or it's just ignored as if it never happened? Yeah, that never happened. There is yeah. one one branch. Like branches doesn't, doesn't exist, yeah. only for a period of time. Uh, so actually, you can only be sure that your transaction will be persistent after six blocks. That's what is written actually in the, mm-hmm. in the Bitcoin. Well, in Bitcoin, in six blocks, in, in the Bitcoin paper. Uh, you can only be secure, sure that your transaction will be persistent after six blocks, um, which is around an, around one hour, if you consider that 10 minutes each block. In Ethereum, it's a lot more blocks. I don't remember exactly the number, but it's also you also need to wait one hour. So in order to be oh, wow. sure that your transaction will be persistent forever, you should wait uh, one hour. Yeah. So is there just some sort of algorithm in the background looking at like which blocks the longest off of where to start building from? It's not like an active decision that I say, oh, I want this fork instead of that fork, right? It's just happening in the back end that your computer knows which fork to go off of. The thing is, every time you mine a new log, if you're a, this, this concern mostly if you're a miner. These edge cases mm-hmm. or like the very last blog is something that... That matters more for the miners, I think. Um, uh, when you're a miner, what you do is you basically 
if you add the new block, then you have to broadcast that to the whole network. So all the miners want, uh, like you want all the miners to actually accept your block in order for your money and all your block to be real. Uh, so you're also always listening for others, mine, other miners sending you their new blocks. So every time, so you're always receiving new blocks. Every time you see one chain that is bigger than yours, you accept that one and you start mining there. Because if you start mining in, in, in a chain that it's not the longest, then if you get the next block, then you have a lot of chances that the other chain already have a new block too. So then you're basically competing against that other branch and you will never win and probably your, your, all the money that you earn because of the blocks that you mine will never become true. So you always try to find the longest chain because mining in that chain is more, is more safe. Right. Yeah, it kind of goes back to it's just based off what the market values everything at in cryptocurrency. So say I go back a year to a natural fork that didn't make it, that went two blocks and another one kept going and that's our current fork now. That if I Pro just Probably you cannot even go to that block. Oh, you can't even see it? Because probably nobody stored it. Oh, yeah. So say like two weeks ago, however long ago, if I could find the block, if I went on it, it would just be a waste of energy and a waste of time because so I would broadcast to everyone, hey, I did this block and everyone would be like, I don't care. I'm... That's, that's non-existent to me because we're so far ahead yeah. over here. So uh, most of the natural forks, they get lost. Nobody store that. Interesting. Cool. Yeah, that's great information about natural forks and kind of behind the scenes what's going on to keep the blockchain persisting and how it's kind of a lot of like human psychological market, behavioral economics of how the basis of cryptocurrency and blockchain works. Uh, it's all super interesting. I'm glad... We turned it back on to <laughs> figure out with Ethereum, Ethereum Classic, and Natural Forks. So for real this time, Vicente, thank you for coming on. So much cool stuff. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you very much. It was, it was very fun. All right. Let's give this a shot. Muchas gracias por escuchar el Style is Free podcast. Hoy aprendimos mucho sobre blockchain y lo hablaremos en el futuro. Sintonice la próxima vez para obtener más buena onda y más conversaciones de tecnología y startups. Hasta la próxima vez, amigos. Este es el Style is Free Podcast y soy tu anfitrión, Brett Leibowitz. <música>